Hello, and welcome to the Strategica podcast from the Hoover Institution, analyzing the intersection of military history and contemporary national security concerns. You can find us online at hoover.org forward slash Strategica. I'm your host, Troy Senek, and today we'll be examining the topic of the most recent issue of Strategica, how can U.S. military readiness meet America's present strategic responsibilities at a time of budgetary shrinkage and growing isolationism. And we are joined today by the author of the historical backgrounder in this issue, Tom Donnelly, co-director of the Maryland Ware Center for Security Studies at the American Enterprise Institute and a member of Hoover's Military History Working Group. Tom, welcome back to the podcast. Thanks for having me. Okay, so let me start by having you develop some of the language there in the prompt, a time of budgetary shrinkage. That's a pretty common complaint these days, but many of our listeners might not have a sense of that that goes beyond just the very general. So as a practical matter, what kinds of budgetary constraints have been placed upon the military and what are some of the tangible effects it's having? Uh, well, the constraints, the you know, just measuring them in budgetary terms, uh, have been constantly tightening uh, for a long time now, but but certainly – uh, there are sort of two events over the last uh, – over the President Obama's term uh, that have really uh, added another notch to the noose, so to speak. Um, and it's not simply that uh, the president decided to reduce the amount of money that he requested from the Congress uh, for defense, which he did very early on and – Something like three hundred billion dollars worth of defense procurement programs were uh, terminated in two thousand nine, but the biggest uh, factor of all was the Budget Control Act uh, of two thousand eleven, uh, which essentially was an agreement by the Republican leadership in Congress and the White House uh, that overall, over the ten year period that the law covered, and we're about four years into that now, about a trillion and a half uh, dollars would be uh, taken away from defense plans and, and programs. That's about a 20% cut from what was already um, a constantly diminishing budget over the post-Cold War years. And, you know, uh, that's just... Uh, and at the same time, the requirements for the military, you know, what they do on a day-to-day -day basis, the pace of operations, even during uh, President Obama's second term has remained high. Uh, so these are trend lines that are very much at odds. Uh, and, the, and the consequence is that uh, the overall preparedness of the force, and particularly for larger-scale operations, has been diminishing to the point where the service chiefs of staff are, are really beginning to scream out loud about it. And to that point, that was going to be the next question I was going to ask you. What are some of the specific effects that we'd point to? If we went sort of uh, service by service, well, where are we seeing things fall off? You would see it uh, really broadly across all the services, but the place to look, and this is really critically important, is – uh, sort of outside the main picture frame. You know, we see uh, uh, pretty impressive uh, press reporting of forces operating in the field, but they're really the 
beneficiaries of uh, what's happening behind the curtain. So it's the other, you know, 85% of the services who aren't at any one particular moment in the field or in harm's way who are paying the bills for the small percentage of forces that are uh, actually in action at the moment. Uh, so the place to look for evidence of readiness is in the motor pools and the maintenance bays and on the training grounds of units that are still at their home stations who don't have the funds to train, who don't have the spare parts, say, to keep aircraft flying for training purposes, who don't have the personnel uh, to fill out units or to train uh, beyond the the most rudimentary levels. President Obama comes in for a lot of the rhetorical blame for this, as does uh, some Republicans in Congress, as you mentioned earlier. But you also mentioned that this trend precedes the Obama administration. Can you give us a little bit of a sense of the history there? It does, and and you really have to go back. Uh, to the end of the Cold War to get the full perspective of this. And just to, you know, use a, one metric of, uh, of how things have changed. Um, the army that came out of Operation Desert Storm, the 1991 Gulf War, the active duty force, uh, at that point was greater than 900,000 soldiers. Now, that included several tens of thousands of mobilized reservists. Uh, but within the next year or so, the active duty army will be roughly about half of that. Uh, and as I say, while nothing since then has been on that desert storm scale, the pace of operations has been constant. So you're basically trying to do more with less on a day in uh, day out basis. And in this period of time, there have been, I would say, sort of three major punctuation points. The first one was obviously the most immediate post Desert Storm, post Cold War years, when the overall for force was reduced by about a third, plus or minus, it varied a little bit by service. Um, and in particular, during the 1990s uh, was when the so-called procurement holiday uh, uh, came into effect. That is to say, the weapons designs that had come to maturity in the late Cold War years and in the immediate subsequent years were basically put on hold. Another sort of example of this is the uh, F-22 uh, fighter plane, which is the most advanced uh, plane that the Air Force flies, the most advanced plane in the world, but the plan was originally to buy 750 F-22s. The program was terminated in 2009 at about 185. So that's a, the sort of scale of the reductions. Um, and then, uh, as I say again, um, the other important event uh, in this period is uh, that this will sound somewhat counterintuitive uh, because obviously um, after 9 11, uh, lots of money was thrown at fighting the wars in Iraq and Afghanistan. But no more than that. The base structure of the services uh, remained essentially the same. And in fact, uh, the Navy and the Air Force were actually uh, reduced somewhat 
in, in personnel, and only at the very end uh, with the Iraq surge was the army even expanded um, by about 15%. So it, the, again, with, with the effects of the Obama administration policy and the Budget Control Act, we're now back to levels not simply that are smaller than they were uh, eight years ago or smaller than they were after 9-11 or smaller than they were in 1991, uh, but they're back to sort of historic lows. The Navy, for example, uh, could end up someplace around uh, 240 or 250 ships, which would be the smallest fleet since uh, the pre-World War I period. Tom, one of President Obama's signature foreign policy initiatives has been his pivot to Asia, the idea being that the U.S. really needed to have more of a pronounced defense focus on the Pacific because that's going to be where a lot of the action is in the 21st century. In your piece at Strategica, you actually point to that as a contributing factor to the lack of military readiness. Explain what you mean there. Well, um, with the announcement of the rebalance or the pivot uh, came – yet another change in defense planning. Um, so we were essentially going to size our forces to be only prepared to do one major war uh, and to do sort of a variety of other cats and dogs. And the historical standard, we should be clear for our listeners there, has always been two. That That's correct. And, and in fact, uh, you know, if you sort of Say, look at World War II, for example, which is, you know, by far the largest military effort the United States has ever undertaken. By the modern standards, you know, sort of depending on how you count them, that was more like four or five because, of right. course, there were substantial uh, sort of sub-theaters. You know, the war against Japan was prosecuted both in the Central Pacific and in the Southern Pacific. Um, and, of course, the war in Europe uh, had theaters in North Africa and in Italy as well as in Western Europe. And, of course, let's not forget that the Soviet Union, actually, the Eastern Front, as the Germans called it, was the largest theater of war of all. Right. So, again, these are pretty, you know, not only has the number of things that we count been uh, reduced, but the yardstick by which we measure them has been reduced. So the, to get back to the Pacific pivot point, um, uh, uh, the, the pivot sort of had an internal logic, and we sort of took the savings, as it were, that accrued to that. But, of course, the world has not complied to that. Uh, shortly after the Pacific pivot, uh, Vladimir Putin annexed Crimea and has continued to uh, nibble at Ukraine. Um, uh, and uh, uh, in in the Middle East, uh, the Syria war and uh, you know the Yemen war and all the other wars in the Middle East, uh, this, you know, there's no counting for the Arab Spring or the rise of ISIS or the metastasization of Al Qaeda across the region, and even in the Pacific, the st the striking thing is that really there's no there there to the pivot. It's not simply that uh, a smaller force has not been able to accomplish the pivot. Um, uh, but the striking thing, and again, we sort of see this in the headlines every day. Just the other day, the Pentagon proudly announced yet another freedom of ob op 
pardon me, free, freedom of navigation operation in the South China Sea in response to China's uh, island snatching and uh, building of military facilities on those atolls and reefs. Uh, but that was one destroyer uh, that sailed within 12 miles of one of these uh, Chinese facilities for a very short period of time and promptly, uh, you know, ran away. Uh, so if you actually look at our presence in the Pacific, if anything, it's diminished both because the fleet and other, you know, and their air fleets uh, as well have uh, been reduced, but they've been, they've still been employed uh, as heavily as ever in the Middle East and elsewhere. Tom, this will be the last question I put to you, sort of pulling back from the specifics a little bit. Are there first principles for a good American military budget? I mean obviously the specifics are going to change with the technology, with the security threats, with the political environment. But as a broad matter, are there certain things that any good military budget is going to do? Well, it, it really goes back to the role that the United States plays in the world. If we intend to remain the ultimate guarantor of international peace and stability, the world that we have lived in for the last generation, um, we have to have sufficient forces really in three theaters, not just East Asia, not just Europe, but also the Middle East. And particularly given the uh, unraveling of uh, any sort of order in the Middle East, the cost of that sort of increases on a day-in, day-out basis. You have to – global powers don't pivot. Um, mm. I mean, this is sort of a summary way to put it. And what we see happening across the planet is really, uh, to some significant, significant degree, the effect of the absence of American forces – not just as a fighting force, but as a reassuring and deterring force. Um, and all these, really, where the global balance of power is determined in those three spots. All right. If, we, guess. If, we, if we don't, if we're not willing to do it, uh, we're going to see uh, a continuation of the degenerating security situation that we've seen over the last couple of years. All right. Our guest has been Tom Donnelly. You can read his essay and those by other members of Hoover's Military History Working Group by visiting us online at hoover.org forward slash strategica. That's S-T-R-A-T-E-G-I-K-A. Tom, thanks for being with us. Pleasure. Thanks, Troy. For the Hoover Institution, I'm Troy Senek. Thanks for listening. You've been listening to Strategica, and I'm Victor Davis Hanson. 